1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in African American Studies channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm blessed to be in dialogue today with Jessica Wilson. We will be discussing her new book, It's Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies, Published in New York by Hatchet Books 2023. Jessica is an author and a registered dietitian. Jessica, it's an honor to be in dialogue today.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? What formative events in your life inspired you to write this book? And what formative events in your life inspired you to become a dietitian?
0: Sure. I'll start. Um I'll start with becoming a dietitian. and through all these interviews that I've been doing, I've been digging deeper and deeper into what led me to become a dietitian. And I think it was uh, an early preoccupation with my body and with my weight, um, having, been referred to a dietitian at age six, you know, that was a culmination of, you know, doctors expressing concern about the size of my body to my parents, you know, and finally with a referral to the dietitian, you know, I at six years old was told, you know, to start eating less and paying attention to the foods I was eating, but I was, you know, very much a child and not at all. I don't think it was appropriate to be giving diet advice to to six-year-olds. But then, you know, as getting the message that my body was like a problem and something that be, you know, is too much, I, you know, was paying attention to that as I grew older and into middle school. And in high school, like I had already been, you know, aware of my body, um, and its relationship to food and so when someone told me i could be a dietitian and talk to people about food all day i you know took that opportunity and studied nutrition in college
1: what is your book's contribution to the study of eating disorders
0: i think that it talks about both the dietetics field and the eating disorder field, uh, both generally and specifically. So a lot of the gaps in both. Um, In my college uh, years to be a dietitian, I was the only Black student throughout my learning there and into grad school and my internship. And I remember not until 2020 did I meet another Black eating disorder dietitian. those 14 years into my clinical practice. And I think in both fields, we learn such limited information about black people in my dietetics field. I was told what they black people of which I was one, (laughs) what they eat and what's wrong with that. Um, And in the eating disorder field, um, we learn that you know, Black people don't have eating disorders. It's mostly white people who have eating disorders. And so I think the book just calls all of that into question and says it so directly and clearly that it's hard for people to disagree with the fact that this is a problem.
1: What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers?
0: So I think there's two... Um, audiences that I am particularly interested in. So one is clinicians to, you know, for us to see the gaps that have been in our training uh, and inspire, you know, folks to do things differently and learn more. And then for Black folks, Black women in particular, I want us to know that the ways that we feel about our body, the messages that we're told about our body by society and the medical. Um, industrial complex is rooted in decades centuries of racism and white supremacy that it's not our fault that society looks at our bodies like we're a problem and that we're not a problem
1: what does your book teach us about aesthetics
0: i talk about the politics of desirability um some in the book and and otherwise and you know, people like to use, you know, simple lines about like, you know, love your body and, you know, there's nothing, you know, your looks shouldn't matter. Um, And, you know, in an ideal world, that would be true. But uh, for black folks, for trans folks, for folks who don't, you know, conform to what society really, you know, holds up as what is acceptable appearance does matter and it's really rooted in white supremacy so when it comes to aesthetics conforming to what is popular um, now and desired by you know society conforming to those for uh for black women particularly can provide some safety and survival in an environment we're already told you know that we're wrong or we shouldn't be there
1: What are the primary themes in your book? What argument does your book advance?
0: There's three sections, um, and all three are in a different type of conversation. The first section is about resilience, respectability, and restriction. And in a way, you know, all of those and the ways that those three things can serve as survival tools when our bodies are too much, Um, And then a second theme is that individual solutions are not solutions for uh, black women in the way that we're policed in society. So body positivity, and you know, I call it the live, love, laugh, like just think yourself into, you know, a more positive state, like that might be helpful for some people. But know for those of us who are policed for the ways that our bodies look that's not going to be enough so really not using individual solutions to societal problems is another theme and then a third is really um radically reimagining the lives and the body narratives of black women in a way that centers you know our joy because in a society that's so um, invested in, you know looking at us as productivity, as labor, as, you know, animalistic, you know, I really want us to celebrate the joy of black women.
1: What would you like listeners to get out of, of our dialogue today?
0: I like to challenge folks to, you know, search a bit more or Google a bit more um, right now, the prevailing, um, conversation revolves around diet culture as an oppressive force. And I want folks to dig a bit deeper and think a bit deeper about how, you know, centuries ago we've been constructing society in a way, um, that values, you know, both smaller bodies and how that's connected to whiteness, um, an inherent juxtaposition against Blackness. So just digging a bit deeper would be great.
1: How is respectability or quote unquote respectability presented in your book?
0: Uh, That one I love. It's really in conversation with some of my Black friends um, who tell stories of their own experience with respectability, both um, in interactions with Black women they don't know and in family members and how respectability can be something that we say that we shouldn't engage in or um, that it's a bad thing. But What I think gets missed is how people who are enforcing a right way to be, you know, in public for Black women um, are really trying to protect us um, by telling us that when whiteness is watching, you know, we need to behave in a certain way. And so just having a conversation about how that distances us from the folks that are telling us these things, but also, you know, wanting us to find some context for that. So we're not blamed for how we act in company.
1: What light does your book shed on recent controversies in sports involving Simone Biles and mm. Naomi Osaka?
0: That's a great question. Um, both, well, I'll speak specifically to Simone um, and how she was, you know, heralded at for her body initially um, and how she needed to have superhuman strength and the ways also that she was portrayed by a lot of folks um online for choosing her mental health um choosing not to put herself at risk choosing not to potentially dying um choosing herself basically um over what society expected of her and how she was differently and had always been differently discussed um, the way that her body looked you know, was always talked about differently. She was always powerful and muscular um, and was never really given the opportunity to choose herself. I loved Naomi Osaka speaking publicly about the things that she was experiencing and her mental health and just the way that these stories look differently and how the media was portraying um, Black women choosing themselves when we're not used to, you know, protecting black women and girls.
1: Why is the quote unquote, body positivity mindset, dangerous and problematic?
0: Yeah, I think that one, you know, goes a bit against what, you know, popular culture is telling us right now. Because in theory, if we think more positively about our bodies, in theory, we should feel better. But what it misses is that oftentimes folks, you know, may feel positive about our bodies, feel fine about our bodies, you know, inside our home or with folks in our community, but we still have to go out and engage in society in a society that, you know, doesn't, treat us with care. And so we might feel fine about our bodies, but society, you know, is constantly telling us that our bodies are a problem. Our bodies are unattractive or, you know, we don't have value because of the color of our skin. And so the idea that we can think ourselves into positivity is again, one of those individual solutions that will not solve a societal problem and without addressing those societal structures we just continued to prioritize you know those with most most privilege which is many times thin white women
1: you describe mia's story why is it significant why did you choose to begin your book by narrating it
0: so mia is um a client that i mentioned specifically um she her identity has been modified a bit but her schooling um, is a predominantly white grad program and i talk about how much she you know already stood out how much she stuck out in her class um, being the only black woman there and how she knew that that was going to negatively impact her opportunities in her um in her academic and professional opportunities um and so she found that by shrinking her body literally physically with an eating disorder um made her body shrink and she got a lot of positive feedback from you know people who hadn't noticed her before or who hadn't perhaps noticed her in a negative way that were now praising her and i start with her story because it is a conversation between me and her um i think it sets up the book to be more personal, accessible, but also recognizing that the real, you know, consequences of the ways that we talk about bodies, you know, really cause harm to people. And I think it also introduced people to me in the way that they saw that my job as a clinician is so much more complex because, you know, Mia, who was referred for an eating disorder will, you know, if she were to regain her weight, will go back to, you know, being hyper visible and invisible in her academic setting. So it's not easy, just, you know, it's not as easy as asking Mia to gain or regain weight when she's going to lose some of that survival in her program.
1: What does your book teach us about ethics and virtue ethics?
0: Mm, That's a great question. In the first part of the book, I talk about the concept of Quote, best practices and evidence-based. And I talk about how little research there is on particularly Black women with eating disorders, specifically anorexia, and how everything that is eating disorders, there's thousands of studies on eating disorders. None of them are about Black women with anorexia. And so applying you know the research that we have to everyone who has an eating disorder, to me, is not ethical because we're, we haven't had a best practice or our, you know, tools are not evidence-based in the population I'm most invested. I think of virtue ethics and also purity culture um, and, you know, how we virtue signal um, us as good people say by what we're eating and what we're um how our bodies look and just how, what is ethical and virtuous is oftentimes, you know, rooted in white supremacy.
1: Who is Lexi Brown? Why is she a person of prominence? What does her story reveal?
0: Lexi Brown is a mentee of mine. Um, I met her in 2017 when she was taking a knee during the national anthem at her, uh, at UC Davis, where she was a gymnast and student. And she was being bullied by her um, teammates, and by her coach, and at times, uh, people in the audience. And to me, her story is so important, because she had behaviors of an eating disorder, she was purging and Doing other extreme tactics to lose weight, but she had never thought about it being an eating disorder because she was just trying to make her body smaller. When she was told, you know, similar to Simone Biles, that she was, you know, animalistic and literally being judged, you know, on a scale of zero to 10 um, for her gymnastics performances. And she had never thought to think about what she was doing as disordered because it just meant winning. Like the smaller she made herself, the more it meant winning. And so only in talking to me, um, did she put those pieces together? Also she hadn't thought about it because black women don't get eating disorders supposedly. So it just hadn't been something that she thought was, you know, unhealthy for her. It was just something that she did like a normal Tuesday. I use her. story throughout because I've really seen, you know, an evolution in her, um, in the last five years or so, as she's started to understand more about, you know, how her body was perceived and policed and some of the freedom that comes when she rejects, um, And accepts societal expectations for what they are. And she recognizes that no matter how small, you know, she makes her body or how straight her hair becomes, she's still not gonna be 100% accepted by society.
1: Can you describe the stereotype of the quote unquote, sapphire? Can you explain this stereotype?
0: Mm-hmm. So there's three stereotypes for Black women historically: the sapphire, the mammy, and the Jezebel. And the sapphire is one you know that Black women contend with a lot in the workplace. The angry Black woman is another uh, framing for that one. So anytime that Black women critique something um, in a workplace or you know have feedback, oftentimes it's viewed as angry when. You know, if it were said by someone else, it wouldn't be considered angry. So just the ways that we're tone policed in an environment or, you know, a political stage, it's often referred to as angry when we're just passionate.
1: Can you describe the significance of Tamar Adler's perspectives on body image? What did she learn from dietitian Elise Resch? Where do their perspectives fit in the context of your book?
0: Yeah, Um, Tamar Adler worked for Vogue and, you know, learned about the concept of intuitive eating through a friend and then did a deep dive into the world of intuitive eating. And I write about uh, the interview that she had with Elise Wretch that really showed me the, um, what it was like for a woman with relative privilege to be introduced to the idea that she didn't have to diet anymore. And it was this life of ease for her. She felt, you know, more comfortable with her eating habits and her body and just felt more of this liberatory existence uh, when learning that she didn't, you know, in theory, have to diet anymore. And it really illustrated, like, in the way that the page... The words were on the page that she had written. How you know, flowery and flowy it was. Um, who intuitive eating is really for and who it resonates with. So, someone who already fits in with the norms of Vogue, someone who was already thin herself, um, intuitive eating was really accessible and great for her. Um, that was a solution to how she felt about her body when it isn't for so many of us.
1: You write as follows: the. Use of the term audiences in number three seems as intentional as it is curious. It invokes the idea that there is a select group of individuals watching and listening as Black folks just try to live our lives. It brings forth the necessity of performance. Black women know this reality well. We know when we're being readily observed in mixed company, when we've felt surveilled in what should have been a neutral environment. Can you say more about this insight?
0: Yeah, it re- also relates directly to the respectability um, and how in mixed companies. So when it's not just Black folks in in community, how we are being watched. You know, an example of that is being visible, uh, hyper visible, but also invisible. So people are regularly watching. I think of um, in Napa Valley here, here in California, there was a story of a wine train. Um, where, you know, it was going through the Napa Valley, and people were drinking wine. And there was a table of black women who were laughing too loudly for the other white participants on this train and were really, you know, policed and told to be quiet and asked to, you know, stop having you know, a good time as other people were, there's a weight on our shoulders at all times when we're policing our internal selves, like knowing that people are watching and, you know, just also trying to have fun at the same time. So, you know, there's this undercurrent of stress that we experience, you know, when trying to moderate, but also have fun at the same time.
1: Who is Shana? What does her story reveal?
0: Yeah, it's Shana. And she's a friend of mine. Funnily enough, she's also on the cover. So when you see my book, she's got this uh, great smile. And, you know, she also has a very loud and joyful laugh. She's also, you know, somebody that I think of often. Um, she's somebody else who story um, winds and weaves through the book is a really good friend of mine. So she spoke about her own experience of respectability. You know, she is someone who I talk about in the joy chapter about really, you know, how we can move from, you know, societal expectations and experience our own joy. She not only is on the cover, she's also in the publishing uh, world. So she read through the book and gave me a lot of feedback initially. So her story, both, you know, her, her work, and just her life are woven throughout in a beautiful way that really makes the book about community.
1: Can you tell us about Gwyneth Paltrow's brand, Goop? Why is it notable?
0: (laughs) I get so much entertainment about the existence of Goop. And it's interesting for those of us who are older, we remember Gwyneth Paltrow from being an actor. And when I talk to younger people, they don't know she's ever been an actor. They just know her as a wellness, you know, quote, influencer. And I always think about her as peak capitalism. Like she invents problems that we then need to buy her products to solve. Um, We didn't know we needed her candles that smell like orgasms or other parts of her body until she decided to sell them to us for $75. I didn't know I needed that. And all of the other things that she is selling um, really also just elevate and create a new standard for what people should be aiming to and aiming towards so you know if you buy these products if you buy you know powders and mushrooms and all of these other things that she's selling you know that's another way to establish status like there's only so many people who can afford this and what she is selling is like a new version of you know purity and wholeness
1: you end your book with the following words i could eat eggs for multiple meals in a day and enjoy chips and donuts for pleasure i adore i adore the quirky mishmash." of people who end up on Nailed It and Nicole Byers' epic outfits on the show. I hope to enjoy many, many more bike adventures. Listening to a group of black women laughing loudly will always bring me to tears. Black joy is beautiful. Black joy is everything. It deserves to be recognized and celebrated for the resistance it is. Black joy is an act of rebellion when everything else in this world aims to deny us of this. Our joy has always been ours. The narratives of Black women are being rewritten to center our joy. Joy has always been ours. Why did you end the book with these specific words? What impression did you hope to pass on to your readers?
0: One that I hope is pretty simple like leaving on a warm note after I list things that bring me joy and my uh, you know friends and colleagues um I really want people to leave this book feeling warm and like a sense of possibility is there for them to experience their own joy and then it goes into the subtitle of my book, which is rewriting narratives. I really want the narratives of black women to be about our joy rather than our trauma or our labor or, you know, the maternal and infant mortality rate, which is just always the center of our stories in the media. But I want instead for folks to notice the things that we're doing to resist the ways that society is treating us. And I think in 2023, we really need more joy and to celebrate that for all of us.
1: You write as follows on pages ninety-seven and ninety-eight. According to the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Eating Disorders, the DSM-5, to qualify as having bulimia nervosa, one's self-evaluation is unjustifiably nuanced by body and body shape and weight. For anorexia nervosa and atypical anorexia nervosa one needs to have intense fear of gaining weight and be disturbed by one's weight or shape as read it implies that an individual needs to be concerned about their own body that the diagnosis comes from an internal concern about weight or shape but how do we define quote unquote disturbed what if an individual is undisturbed by their own body but others are disturbed. What if someone's self-evaluation is justifiably influenced by their shape and weight? Every Mm -hmm. time black women leave the house, we're reminded of how others view our bodies. The mental and physical preparation required to venture into spaces that others wouldn't think twice about entering can be exhausting. Within family systems, we receive messages about how to have a body. Society is often disturbed by our existence our bodies it makes sense that our self-evaluation be influenced by our shape and weights. can you expand upon this insight for us
0: mm-hmm okay, good. It goes into, you know, body image treatment for people with eating disorders that operates on assumptions. So the assumptions that we feel bad about our, you know, weight, we feel bad about our body. um, But it's not, it's so often not how we feel ourselves about our body. It's the messages that we're getting all the time from society. So again, like focusing on, you know, making an individual feel better about their own bodies really misses what's going on and can end up, you know, gaslighting. I find um, our clients for those of us who are clinicians, because we keep saying, you know, it's not true. Your body's fine. Um, But our clients are really having a different experience um, anytime, you know, they leave their house. So yeah, the things that we miss when we make these assumptions in eating disorder treatment, but, you know, with people in general.
1: This is a theme that's come up many times, both in our discussion, and that's very much omnipresent in the book. But what are the problems in hearing the ways that quote unquote wellness and quote unquote health are defined in contemporary culture?
0: Yeah, a lot of people, you know, this may be the first time to hear that, you know, health is really a social construct, that, you know, in society, it health looks a certain way, it has certain things, um, you know, health is thin, it, you know, depending on the decade, it either just looks thin or it looks fit, um, that we've decided and, you know, created cutoffs like BMI that really mean nothing about health. But what it does, you know, is have ways to police, you know, each other and also like have medical establishments create harm. And how wellness, if we look back centuries, was really defined in eugenics. Um, and if we look at, you know, John Harvey Kellogg, you know, more famous for his flakes of corn than for, you know, his uh, eugenics. Um that the ways that we define health today really have roots in elevating uh, the white race, specifically Anglo- Anglo-Saxon um, race and you know, how that really leads to how we look at health today. And in a way, you know, that really creates the opportunity the lack of opportunity for, you know, black folks to never fit. And I, you know, think about health as, you know, if health is never an option, for black women, black folks, um, then wellness makes sense, even though, you know, it is Gwyneth Paltrow. It's so expensive, but it offers a sense of hope when the medical establishment will never, you know, consider us healthy or will be police told that our bodies are a problem. Black folks are pathologized just, you know, anytime we go into the doctor's office, because, you know, our bodies inherently are risks for, you know, a bunch of chronic diseases. It's our body. That's the problem. It's not racism. It's not trauma. It's not all of the things that we know really contribute to, you know, our weight and our health, but we're told that it's our problem. And so when that happens, you know, wellness for all of the, you know, ridiculousness oftentimes offers a sense of possibility.
1: What does your book teach us about trauma?
0: The things that I hope folks take away that are specific to this book are the ways that um, trauma impacts our physical and mental health um, and also our community health. So, you know, we will say so often or we'll hear that trauma impacts our health, that racism um, can increase blood pressure, but so often the solution when you go into the doctor's office or look things up online is like, eating and exercise or like quote healthy eating and exercise as the solution to the impacts of trauma on the body. So what if we were to imagine a world or start creating a world in which there was less trauma, there was, you know, healing that were, you know, to be happened and prioritized for people who experienced trauma in a way that we're really treating you know the roots of where this came from, rather than just suggesting diet and exercise to mitigate the problems.
1: What was the Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives conference of 2022? What would you, what did you learn from experiencing this conference?
0: Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives is a annual conference put on by the Culinary Institute of America and the Harvard Th. CH- Chan School of Public Health. And it's held every year in Napa, California, um, a very pretentious area, uh, famous for its wine in the um, Valley of California. And it's a bunch of public health invested, you know, medical providers, researchers, uh, dietitians, and policymakers who come together, Oh, and chefs, sorry, um, as well. Uh, to hear about how I talk about it. I talk about it as they come to hear more about how to use quinoa and kale. Um, it's really focused on, you know, whole grains and a vegan diet is really the solution to everything that is going on with, you know, America health wise, you know, everything is plant-based. Everybody is supposed to be eating very tiny portions of any food. Um, And using copious amounts of olive oil on their food, but it is two plus days of us listening to how, um, poor people, how folks of color are basically, you know, choosing to, you know, be unhealthy and, you know, quote unhealthy, um, because, you know, poor people don't have access to, you know, just food overall, um. They're speaking to us about policies that need to be, you know, in place that in no small, you know, in a very subtle way, like pathologize us. Um, they believe that the solution to poverty is cooking classes. You know, if people learn how to cook with more whole grains, you know, they'll inherently be healthier. And they might be eating more fiber, sure, but it's not going to impact, you know, their living environment, the, you know, air pollution that is there, the stress of the environment. So really it was, you know, you can eat your way to health. You can eat, you know, healthy foods to get to this, you know, ultimate state of health is defined by culture as society. Um but there was complete disregard for cultural, you know, differences, cultural eating pa- plans. White rice was, you know, pathologized and problematized, and how we shouldn't eat it. And you know, over the half of the world eats white rice as a staple. It's more stable um, because the uh, elements that make it spoil um, have been removed. So it's just a, you know, natural and well held staple of many. Uh, cultures cultures around the world, but all of that was disregarded in um, the push for more avocado and nuts. Um, so it was this otherworldly um, environment in which someone, m- uh, myself, I have epilepsy and I take medications, you know, morning and night and sometimes rescue medications. And it was really this feeling of, if you have to take medications, your you know, not doing things correctly. You're not exercising, uh, enough. You're not eating healthy enough. You know, we're providing these solutions to people in the form of healthy eating. And it was such a stressful and puritanical environment, um, that I really was not expecting from a place that is just supposed to, you know, teach us how to cook these things and have, you know, be fun in, in Napa. It was, it was wild. I was there to talk about health disparities, and after doing so, was, you know, somewhat shamed and shunned for talking about um, bodies not being the problem.
1: What does your book teach us about community?
0: I really feel like a lot of healing is found in community. So if in healthcare, if in wellness, you know, if these things are not going to provide the solutions, quote, uh, to our healing, that community, just being in a community of folks who, you know, are similarly aware that, you know, our bodies are not a problem, that our culture is beautiful in which we can find joy, um, you know, these are places that are going to help our cortisol levels go down. These are places that are going to make us happy, like so much healing from what the world is throwing at us can be found, you know, within these units um, that contribute both to healing and political, I find, you know, resilience and resistance.
1: In your perspective, what is missing from the body of research about dietetics and eating disorders?
0: So in the ways that um, traditionally, you know, European or quote the Mediterranean diet, but basically just the diet um, typically found in rich um, white folks in affluent areas, um, I really feel that access to food should be the baseline, that we should not be talking about food, like the types of food people should be eating unless people have access to food. So I would love to see the dietetics field be more focused on food apartheid um, than on quote, the right way to eat food. Because until people have that basic need met, there, in my opinion, is not value. Again, it's not ethical to tell people what to eat if they are not able to eat food. So how can the dietetics field really influence that with policy and research and for eating disorders, we need just more research on black folks, trans folks, you know, brown folks, all of the people who are not, um, thought to have eating disorders. We would really all be, you know, better served if more research was done.
1: What does your book teach us about listening
0: I liked your question earlier when, um, and I answered somewhat about how we end up gaslighting people when we don't listen to their experience, when we tell them just to love their bodies is an example. Um, so really sitting with, um, the deeper questions from what people are telling us another, you know, one instance in the book, I talked about a Latina woman who, you know, got away from her cultural foods living in a predominantly white area of California because she found out when she hung around the whole foods there, you know, her social capital increased, you know, people, the white kids at school started talking to her more. And what I was able to listen to when she was telling me that her, you know, diet was vegan and she had, you know, quinoa and, you know, kale is, what she was doing was trying to survive in those environments so like digging down and being more curious about what folks are telling me and you know if they're trying to you know perform in some way through food choices can be really helpful
1: how can your ideas and your research be implemented by schools churches colleges workplaces and other institutions
0: Yeah. The easiest one I think to answer is colleges, because I always think about my journey to becoming an eating disorder dietitian. Um, It's not one that I intended to take. I thought I would be talking to college students about, you know, adulting skills, how to grocery shop and, you know, plan meals. But it turns out when you work in college health, a lot of what you're doing is working with uh people with eating disorders. And so in college health, I think talking about the complexities of eating disorder development and individuation and trauma and how that impacts eating disorders is an interesting one. Um, I see so much like school garden programs that are um, introducing, you know, students to quote healthier foods, like making the assumption, you know, that, you know, students aren't um you know, choosing healthy foods. And as long as they're introduced to them, you know, that will be the default choice, but I trust that, you know, families that kids will make, you know, choices to eat fruits and vegetables when there are environments that support that. So how can we really, you know, be focusing again on the environments rather than, you know, introducing somebody to, you know, let's see a tomato, but like, you know, people want to eat a variety of foods and will do so when their environment support that. Um, So that's one way that schools um, can do that. And then communities can have more complex conversations about, you know, food and, um, you know, how our, you know, uh, desirability politics at play and just allowing more space for people to be who they are in those environments.
1: What does your book teach us about perfectionism?
0: That's a good one. Um, I think about, you know, the phrasing that um, Black women uh, work twice as hard to get half as much and the reach for Black women oftentimes to go beyond even perfection and the ways that which, you know, we overwork ourselves in uh, environments and how perfectionism is literally killing us um, because of our like drive and ability to overwork ourselves, to prove ourselves, but how, you know, in the end, perfectionism won't save us in those environments.
1: Can you tell us about the New Georgia Project? What was Stacey Abrams' role and rationale in establishing it? What mm-hmm. are its aims and goals? Can you elaborate upon it?
0: Yeah, the New Georgia Project is in Georgia. Um, And, you know, one of its goals is to increase the, you know, number of registered voters. And I talk about Stacey Abrams in the book um, because, you know, The idea that she was going to save the country, literally, um, during the 2020 election was, you know, very prevalent. I heard, you know, so many, you know, people saying, like, if anybody's going to do it, Stacey Abrams is, you know, going to be the one to save us. And so much uh, was put on her shoulders that, you know, I thought was pretty connected to the ways that Black women have been um, portrayed in society as those who work for the greater good, as those, you know, who are here to both raise and like nurture a country. Um, And so I was drawing those connections to her and her labor and how everything, a lot of our conversations was really put on her shoulders. And the New Georgia Project did a great job. So it's both It's definitely a, you know, situation in which, yes, you know, the New Georgia Project did amazing work. And, you know, was it the job of just a handful of Black women to get that done? How can, you know, all of us be really invested in doing this work and not just leave it to those who are thought to labor for, you know, the U.S.?
1: What new insights does your book present about love?
0: One of the more poignant lines of the book is from Efeshina in the context of respectability and how they really, you know, love Black folks and how they say, I want to belong to you differently. So, in the context of respectability, you know, I want to have a relationship with you that doesn't involve you telling me you know, to cover my body. So that's one moment where there is like love and reverence for black folks and how we can belong to each other. Um, something else that I talk about that I really learned is how cut up I was in some respectability and how in writing this book, I, you know, realized that if I'm here and love black women, that really means all black women, um, that doesn't mean those who, you know, behave in a certain way. And I am just a product of society itself. And, you know, some of me is tied, you know, into that respectability and how I really needed to put that aside and be, you know, here for and love all Black women.
1: Can you tell us about the University of Oregon's Body Project?
0: Yeah, the Body Project is, you know, quote, now an evidence-based uh, program for just, you know, improving body image. And it was by, you know, cis, it was studied on cis women. And the more, you know, people started including people of color into conversations about eating disorders, they wanted to do more research um about, you know, folks of color and trans folks when it came to uh body image research. And so they tried expanding this program uh to see if it had benefits on Uh, people of color and trans folks. And what they found, you know, in their research was that people didn't feel comfortable speaking up. They didn't, you know, find the program basically to be a supportive place for them um, when they were using the body project. But still in the conclusion of that research, it says it was effective for everyone. And uh, it's just baffling to me that people can cherry pick Um, You know, from research to get the results that really affirm what they thought to be true, which, you know, inherently just benefits white folks, even when the research is telling them differently.
1: What does the quote unquote Karen stereotype mean and refer to? How is it portrayed in your book?
0: Yeah. So folks may be familiar with the Karen stereotype. Um, Karen is the one that will, you know, call the manager or call somebody in a place of authority. Um, And I, you know, talk about it in the book in context of how, you know, and historically white women have been, you know, able to use, you know, the institutions like police um, to protect themselves, to, you know, weaponize the you know, use of their feelings, their crying, their tears, um, in order to basically just get what they want. I talk about Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper, who have no relation. Um, and you know, Christian Cooper was a bird watcher, and how Amy Cooper was asked by him to you know, keep her dog on a leash because it was disturbing the bird's habitat and how she ended up calling the police and making up a story about how she was being attacked and that's why the police needed to come. And it was just an, a stark example of how you know, we serve to, you know, we as a society are structured to, you know, help and support and care for the feelings of white women at the expense of other people. So really that institutional piece was what I was pulling out there.
1: What would you say are the primary differences between the practice of clinical nutritionist work today in the year Mm -hmm. 2023 vis-a-vis the 1990s and 1970s what progress has the profession made Mm
0: -hmm.
1: what progress would you like to see made where has there been regression and where do you see genuine improvement can you share your your sincere thoughts on this
0: Yeah. Um, for those of us who lived through the nineties, uh, the 1990s, we remember snack welts. We remember, I always think of the Doritos and the chips that used Alestra, which was a, you know, fat tasting molecule, but a lot of people would, you know, experience, um, adverse gastrointestinal problems from it, including diarrhea, but how indoctrinated we were with the idea that fat was bad. Um, and we weren't, you know, supposed to eat eggs. So there was some understanding, you know, to today that the dietary cholesterol we eat, you know, doesn't really impact the bot the body's level of cholesterol. It's more about um the types of fat, but not specifically cholesterol. Um, so like there has been some research that has, you know, disproven the things that we thought to be true. And again, there's the doubling down that I think came around, um, the biggest loser when that started coming out and really the policing and, you know, the idea that it was okay to shame people based on their body size. And that, you know, continued into the dietetics field as more and more people became dietitians with that philosophy about how it's okay to bully people. Um, so with that, um, there have been progress. There are more and more black dietitians now um, and more dietitians of color generally, which I think is amazing and would love to see continue. Um, but our dietetics programs, you know, really haven't made that leap. I hear more and more people talk about how weight doesn't equal health. Like that has been amazing to find among nutrition students who are the ones telling me that they have gone outside of their program to learn about these things and how weight and health are, you know, not indicative, um, and not they're correlated perhaps, but not caus- causation there. Um, and so there are more resources for folks who are becoming dietitians, which I love, um, the younger and younger dietitians, um, are more open to, you know, looking at, systemic um, issues, looking at structural determinants of health, looking at health disparities. So that gives me some hope.
1: Which studies and memoirs about eating disorders have impacted you most profoundly? Can you describe these works?
0: One of the texts that I highly recommend um, is Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. And it takes us back those, you know, centuries to see how the juxtaposition and the connection between Blackness and fatness was made. Um, So that really is a foundation for a lot of the work that I do. And then another one is a newer book by Deshaun L. Harrison, and their body is belly of the beast, and it takes you know a, a vision of you from a trans, ma- trans mask person, um, and how they have taken the works of uh, Dr. Sabrina Strings, who wrote Fearing the Black Body, and really apply it to their new you know lens of constructing a new world, and how we really need to. You know, construct a new world with new thoughts. So both of those are very specific to Black bodies, and I think really set set the stage.
1: What does your book teach us about resilience?
0: Hmm. It's a good question. Um, I think the book talks really about the harms that can exist in the workplace um, through resilience, and in um, chapter nine, I talk about redefining vulnerability in a way in which black women are not inherently, you know, tied to the resilience we require um, just to exist in society. So removing that um, and adding, you know, ease and joy to our vulnerability um, instead of having so much of our identity be wrapped up in resilience is, is something that I, I point to.
1: As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where your attention and your time have gone since completing this book?
0: Mm. It's a great question. Um, I have realized, um, with you know, previous interviews that the folks in their twenties are reading this book, coming back to me. With questions that are so insightful that they even surprise me, and so I'm really, you know, seeing the impacts of this book on clinicians, which I think is, you know, amazing on on dieticians and therapists, but the impact that it's having on 20 year olds really surprised me. So I am collaborating with a couple folks. Um, Lexi actually is one of them who you mentioned earlier. <clears throat> And then a um, trans person in the UK about, you know, ways we can further this conversation. So, you know, they're talking about starting a podcast, but really how 20-year-olds can speak to 20-year-olds rather than, you know, millennials like myself speaking to 20-year-olds. How can they be having conversations about bodies? So I'm really hopeful that younger folks are going to be picking this up and all of us old folks you know can become irrelevant at one point and the 20 year olds will lead us into the future
1: as we end today i wanted to let you know how grateful i am for your time and how appreciative i am for your magnanimous answers and your eloquent wisdom in the course of our dialogue thank you for your erudition and thank you for everything you personally have been through in your life. And thank you for everything you sacrificed to make the wisdom of this book available to us.
0: That's so lovely. I appreciate that so much. You're welcome.
1: Thank you. I can humbly say that I think you're a remarkable person.
0: Thank you so much, Ari.
1: To our listeners, I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have been in dialogue with Jessica Wilson. She is a registered dietitian and author. She has written a new book, It's Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies, published in New York by Hatchet Books, 2023. Jessica, if you don't mind me saying, I think you're the salt of the earth and you've done a marvelous job. Thank you. Thank you so
0: much. I really appreciate that.
1: To our listeners, I'm your host today on the New Books and African-American Studies channel on the New Books Network podcast. Thank you for your time.
0: Thank you for having me.